Um, I, I was thinking how, how, how this series we're in, if you haven't been with us, we're looking at the book of Revelation and going through the, really the entire book in about a 12-week window, and you can go back and catch up if you want. Um, it might have been too ambitious for 12 weeks, but that's okay. Um, but, but I was thinking about how today we're, we're trying to look at a big swath of Scripture. So if you have your Bible, we'll be in Revelation chapters 6 through 9 today. But but was thinking about how do I help articulate in a way that might be helpful an understanding of just the whole of the book. It's so a kind of a, a, a picture, if you will. right? Maybe if you went home today and you Googled great murals, you would see all kinds of murals, and, and pretty much all of them are ones that are on buildings around the world, around the country, or wherever. And so there's a few, like even Muskegon, that you might go look at these great murals. But, but some of the greatest murals, um, they tell a story, right? Some of them are realistic in, in terms of you look at the pictures and you're like, actual people, you can figure out who they are, you know who they are, and, and there's a bunch of them together, and sometimes they're chronological, and so like, you know, it's from point A to point B, and it's in order. Other times, they're just a bunch of pictures thrown up, and you got to kind of place them in the correct order, and you're not really sure what's going on, but it's really cool looking. That's almost how I would describe the book of Revelation. It's a bunch of pictures thrown up, and, and it's like when you and I tell a story, well, keep in mind, like, we, we have it in type pages, but when it was originally written, it was written. You ever written a letter, and like you know the paragraphs aren't perfect, that you would go back and do it again if you could, but you've already written it, and it's in pen, and you're like, eh, we'll just kind of fix and go forward. That's kind of how I would help you to think about the book of Revelation at some level, is it's, it's a mural. And some parts are like really obvious, like what they're talking about, and other parts are going, huh, I don't know the story well enough, I don't know who it's, who's the artist, I don't know some of these things well enough, and so I'm... I'm trying to figure out what that looks like, right? But, but here's another way I would say this when you read the whole book. In the early church, especially, um, this letter was written to seven churches in Asia, and it was to be a circular letter, meaning it was to pass from one place to the next. And when they would gather, they would read the whole thing from beginning to end in one sitting. So, by the way, I did that for the first time ever this week. I sat and I read from Revelation 1 to Revelation 22 all the way through. And it was interesting because as I did that for the first time, I don't know why it was the first time, but it was, what I noticed was this, that I didn't care so much about some of the little details. I looked at the big picture of the story. And I want to be clear, I think that's the biggest part for us to do. And in that particular picture, in that particular story, what we see is this. Um, God's going to redeem and make all things new. Until that day, you're going to go through difficulty and hardship, and it's going to feel like powers around the world around you are oppressing you, but don't worry, because we know the one who has conquered even death itself. That's the point of the book. Or to summarize it in a short way, that's how I would describe it. And so I was thinking, um, how would I kind of recap this and bring us up to speed? Well, last week we talked about, uh, we, first seven weeks we talked about the seven letters to the seven churches in Asia. And so you can go back and read those, or go back and listen online if you want and, and we just talked about how each church has this unique personality in writing to the church, or, said another way, to seven churches, the whole of the church. And so each one was a particular thing that mattered in, in a particular way, in a particular location. But then we looked last week at chapter 4 and 5. So chapter 4, what's the point? Like, God is the only one who is worthy of worship, and we should worship him. And so it's kind of invited into this place to see what that might look like. And then chapter 5... John, the revelator who writes the book, is kind of freaked out because he's like, oh, man, there's this scroll that no one can open. And he cries because, you know, because it's apparently important. It's like the scroll of history, how God's plans are going to come to fruition. But no one is capable on earth or under the earth 
or in the heavens who is worthy of this. In fact, say it this way. There is no one on the earth, under the earth, or in the heavens except Jesus who is capable of bringing about God's purposes. So John cries, and then he hears lion, and he looks and sees a lamb, the lamb of God, who is Jesus. And Jesus unrolls the scroll and begins to read. And so the whole point of chapter 4 and 5 is this, that there are no political systems, economic systems, nations, or empires that will bring about God's kingdom in the world. There is only Jesus and his church. Now, side note for this particular week. Um, every once in a while I'm asked, like, hey, who should I vote for? How should I vote? Um, I, I would encourage you to vote. I think that's a valuable thing to do. But here's my answer to those questions. Vote for the person whose character, policies, and behavior most line up with the kingdom of God. Vote for issues that value life from inception to the grave. Don't ever forget that God is the God of the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized. Don't ever forget that there is no party on right or left that represents God's kingdom. Don't ever place your hope in any political system or structure or empire because all of them fall very short. It is the Lamb of God and his church that bring about God's kingdom in the world. That's how you should vote this week. I didn't answer your question for some of you, but that's as good as you're probably going to get from me. If it doesn't value life, if it doesn't value people, if it doesn't think about the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized, by the way, I just picked apart both parties and celebrated both of them all in the same moment. None of them represent the kingdom of God, and we do well to not forget that. In fact, I think uh, John Wesley in 1776 um, he wrote these words in his journal. We've got a picture because I think pictures are way more fun than just words. And here's what it says. These are the words of Wesley. He said, I met those of our society who had votes in the ensuing election and advised them, one, to vote without fee or reward for the person they judged most worthy. Two, to speak no evil of the person they voted against. And three, to take care their spirits were not sharpened against those that voted on the other side. I think the church would do well if we embrace that as true. And if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, that makes you a part of the church. So you would do well to embrace these things as true. Why? Because the whole of Revelation is a critique of empire and its dangers. It's another big picture of this entire book. It's a critique of the nations of the world, of empire, and what that looks like for us. And so the question for us today is, where do we find our hope and our security. And this brings us to Revelation chapter 6. Like I said, 12 weeks, not enough time, so bear with me today. Sorry about the fact that this might be, a, I don't think it'll be long necessarily, but we might cover a lot of stuff. So if you have a Bible, you can kind of stay with me if you want. Uh, or you have an app on your phone probably. That also works. If you don't, you can literally type in Revelation chapter 6 and you can go to it online. So, um, or it'll be on the screen. All those are viable options for you today. But one of the things that's important as we look at this particular book is to understand in Jewish history, numbers matter. Numbers have significance. 
And so the number of seven is the number of completion. We've talked about this before. We remind you again, but six is the number of incompletion, right? It means it's never going to be complete. That's why we talk about 666. It is never going to be complete. It is far from completion as possible. So six is the number of incompletion. Seven is the number of completion. Twelve represents the tribes of Israel or the apostles or all the followers of God. Forty um, is a long time that will change us. And 1,000 is just a really long time, right? Like, that's the point. If we're talking in years, 1,000 is a really big thing, way out there, beyond our comprehension almost. That's kind of the point. So in this book, there are seven seals and seven trumpets and seven bowls. Over and over again, the number seven keeps coming up. There were seven churches and seven letters. You get my point. And so here, in all of that, here's what we find in Revelation chapter 6. We're reading a part of it. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come. I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown. And he rode out as a conqueror, bent on conquest. When the Lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. When the lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, Two pounds of wheat for a day's wages and six pounds of barley for a day's wages. Do not damage the oil and the wine. When the lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was falling close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. All right, now, um, I'll just stop for a second because... Sometimes we'll talk about these four horses as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Um, and and there's a, maybe you don't know this, but this is a great picture. Um, these are the four horsemen of the apocalypse, and they were Notre Dame football players. Um, that's not what they're talking about, but they were so awesome that they were used. So um, Notre Dame did beat Syracuse yesterday. I know you all care so much about that. Just thought I would mention it this morning. Um, so the four horsemen were like the best players in college football, and so unlike... Notre Dame today. No, um, I wish they had four horsemen today, right? Um, so that has nothing to do with what I'm actually talking about. I just thought it was cool you should know that. So he's actually referencing Zechariah chapter 6 and the four horsemen there, and they're the same colors. And so here's what the four horsemen, many scholars would argue. The four horsemen are the places where we find our security, our safety, our hope. So the white horse, this rider held a bow, right? And so here's the white horse. The people are on the outskirts, people who will never be contained, people who never bow to empire, right? This is part of what John's addressing are empires, nations. And so he says, that here's the reality. There are people who will never fit the mold that you desire. And so if you're thinking about Rome in particular, we would talk about who would these people be. Well, they would be the Parthians. Parthians were people that Rome could never really conquer. They kept trying, and it never really worked out. And here's why. Because the people that were Parthian were really good at riding horses and really good at shooting bows while riding those horses. And so now, if you look at the picture, 
that we see here. People are riding, and horse carried a bow. Oh, you begin to see these people on the outskirts who will never fit the mold of empire because empires always want to make you fit with what they desire. And no matter how much Rome tried, they could not do it. But it's the, th- the thought that I can, I can be molded to the way the world works and the way I want. David and Solomon were two people in the Old Testament who bought into this idea, and it cost them their kingdoms. David began to be swayed by others. He wanted to build a house for God, and God's like, I don't need a house. Like, I'm good. And, and he goes, you don't need to do that. And then Solomon goes, well, I'll do it. And Solomon even builds his house with slaves, which is the opposite of who God called his people to be. Builds his house and his palace, and they're both opulent and Solomon, in all his wisdom, right, we've talked about him all the time because he's really easy to pick on, but Solomon um, is led astray because the systems of the world, he put his hope and his security in what his wealth and his weapons and in the end of his life, his kingdom was split in two. He put his security and his trust in the wrong things. So what's that mean for us? There's a tension that exists between security and trust in God. Second horse was red horse. Talking about violence or bloodshed. Uh, in other words, there are, there are systems or people inside the empire that are trying to get us to fit into their mold, right? The, the Parthians were outside, but then there's inside. And so we, you know, Rome was smart enough to call it the Pax Romana or the Peace of Rome. Sounds really peaceful, but here's the thing. If you didn't fit with them, it wasn't all that peaceful. They would crucify you. They would crucify you. In fact, this peace of Rome was anything but peace, and so hundreds and thousands of people were crucified because they wouldn't fit the mold of Rome. It's a false peace. It's a red horse. And then the black horse, the black horse is the horse of famine, right? Um, I know in our days it's really hard to think about famine, especially for us and our culture. It is happening in places around the world, but can you imagine if for a season there was no rain? Can you imagine what might happen in fact, we'd say it this way. Maybe this would be helpful. Have you noticed we're in just a small economic downturn? And have you noticed how much people freak out? People freak out when they go like, wait, the stock market plunged how many points? What in the world are we going to do? In other words, we put our hope and our security in the wrong things. And there's the pale horse. It's death was the writer and the place of the dead Hades was falling close behind. Think about plagues and death. They impacted the first century Rome like crazy. It's not that surprising. I know it's hard for us to imagine a virus or a plague that could impact human history in such a way that everything might shut down. I know it is hard for us to imagine that might be possible. Something might upend all of life and illness, but it does seem to happen. And so the question again, where is our hope and our security found? The four horses represent this. If our hope and security is found in the places of empire, look how quickly they can evaporate and be pushed aside. Right? The fifth seal, souls of the martyrs and the saints, referenced in Psalm 79. And how long, O Lord, is the cry of the people? The sixth seal, God brings judgment in response to the prayers of the martyrs. Right? Seven things happen. Seven groups of people run away. And by the way, if you notice the seven groups of people who run away in the text, these seven groups, all are people in positions of power. It's a reminder again and again to the church, as we even think about this particular week in our culture, the people of God are never called to seek power. And the more we try to seek power, the more we don't look like Jesus. 
It's a good reminder for us as we look about this text. But this brings us to chapter 7. And it's like as we get to the sixth seal, you're like, okay, the seventh seal, we're ready for the seventh one. There were six, now there's number seven. That's got to be up, right? Wrong. See, this is one of the things I don't like about John, the Revelator. It's like he, like, teases you. It's like, hey, I'm going to tell you the whole story. Oh, wait, pause. Side note to your story. You thought you were getting the whole thing. I got another thing for you. And you're like, but I want you to finish the one first. He's like, yeah, someday. I'll get to that. And so here's what we see happens in this. All kind of breaks in, so we're going to read chapter 7, verses 1 through 4. And here's what we see in this text. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw an angel, another angel, coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. Now, I want to point out something. If you're curious about whether this is painting a picture or not, it begins with the four corners of the earth. Well, if you've taken any geography class, you know the earth is round. Again, mural, painting, artistry. Keep that in mind as we read this. But in other words, here's the question. In the midst of the chaos in the world all around us, who is faithful? Who is faithful? Right, so there's been a fascinating thing in my lifetime, and probably even before that, if you go back to really the 70s and 80s specifically, um, there was this fascination with like the mark of the beast and people getting like, you know, the mark of the beast are going to mark you. Um, maybe you, if you didn't grow up in the church, good for you on this part because this is weird stuff. Um, people were so concerned it was going to happen, right? So one of the things, a friend of mine who's a pastor talks about, initially people thought it was barcodes, like at grocery stores when they first started using barcodes. They're going to mark you with a barcode. By the way, that hasn't happened yet. Uh, and then people are like, well, they're going to, it's the COVID shot. No, it's not. Um, you know, whatever, people take all these weird things, right? It's going to be an implant of a chip and all kinds of weird stuff that people freaked out about. Uh, by the way, all of those are dumb. Sorry. Um, not sorry. Uh, those are dumb. That's not what we're talking about here. But have you also noticed here, when people worry about that, but how often have you ever heard people worry about being marked by the lamb? I don't, I don't remember people talking about that. I don't remember that story much, yet it's interesting. That's what John encourages, that there are people who are marked by the Lamb, right? We talk about the Lamb as Jesus, people who are marked by Jesus. There are two Old Testament stories, because this is what, what John does that's so cool. He like paints this mural with all the pictures of the words of the prophets from the Old Testament. And so he's painting this mural, and so these things we begin to see here, here's what he's painting. He's like, these marks, what might they be, and what would have the first century church, what images would have come to mind? And for them, there's this text from Deuteronomy chapter 6 uh, that would have come to mind for them. It's called the Shema, which just means to hear, right? And so this text right, is important. I would even encourage it might be good for us to value this even in our homes today. Here's what Deuteronomy chapter 6 says. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. 
Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. In other words, mark your life by this idea that you're going to love the Lord your God with your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. It's a daily reminder that the people of God would have their lives marked by God. The second one comes to us out of Exodus, out of Egypt. I know I talk about Exodus a lot, but it's because like, so does most of the New Testament. But here's the picture. Um, in the Exodus out of Egypt, one of the things that happens is as all these plagues are happening, right, the point is not the destruction of people. We're going to quote here in a second. But the point is this, that, that God is undoing the myth that Pharaoh or Egypt has true power. That God is undoing the myth of where true power actually lies. So here's what we'd say. The plagues are less about punishment and much more about the idea that human systems, empires, and nations are not where power lies. And so what do the Israelites do? They mark the doorposts of their, of their homes with the blood of the lamb because they are marked by God. What is it that marks our lives? What are we marked by? And the text goes on to talk about the 144,000, and you're like, well, you know, I heard all kinds of th- thoughts on this, but it's 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, so 144,000 people. We hear that and we go, that's a good number. Like, that's about how many were at the Michigan-Michigan State game yesterday, right? Like, we're like, that's a lot. I get it. But, but right, if you count the people in the stadium and outside, it probably was 144,000. But here's the reality for the, in the ancient world. They could not imagine gathering in a space with 144,000 people. That's like a lot. That's like all the people, right? And then here's the other part. This is another cool thing that happens. John hears 144,000. When John looks, he sees a number that cannot be counted. You're not excited about that. You really should be. In other words people who God is embracing as his people and his kingdom, that number is so large, it cannot be counted. Here's what it says. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they and where do they come from? I answered, sir, you know, and he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them nor any scorching heat for the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd and he will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Did you catch that? That was so good. It began with this. From every tribe and people 
and nation and background are all invited into the kingdom of God because the kingdom of God is not defined by any boundaries that we can put on humanity. No matter where people come from, in God's kingdom, they have equal value. He goes on to say this, right? People go, oh, the great tribulation. Well, here's probably what they were talking about. In the early church, they were martyred for their faith often because they were faithful witnesses. And a witness means to bear witness, to speak of. It became something we now describe as like martyrs, people who died for their faith. But they bared witness to the love of God, and it led to their death. And so the great tribulation was probably with persecution of the early Christians. And then here's what we see. In the middle of all that, the church is not saved from trial, but transformed through trial. Do you catch that? Because that's really good. God is not ever promising to save us out of the difficulties of life. But God is promising that in the midst of the difficulties of life, he will be present with us through them. That is the reality. God's people don't get to escape out of the world. That is not an option. Sorry. But he promises that in the midst of what you're going through, he will be present with us. Now I know, if I go back a little earlier, it would be much easier if the mark of the beast really was someone wanted to tattoo your forehead. And I don't think that's going to happen, although it could. I think it's highly unlikely that's going to happen. Here's what I would say this. It seems to be the mark of the beast in our lives is much more subtle. Much less Egypt, right, and oppression, and you're going to be a slave, and much more Babylon, or in other words, we're going to kind of woo you in. That's why I would ask this question, in what ways are we conformed to the pattern of this world? Because this is the question, what marks our It's so easy to be marked by the things of the beast or the empire than to be marked by the things of the lamb or Jesus. And so what are those things that mark our life, right? It's easy for us to think, but this is why Paul writes, we're not to be conformed but transformed. It's so easy for our lives to be marked by systems of overwork or overuse, athletics as God, or travel, or money, or our work, or whatever these things mark our lives are things that bring destruction and not life. But what might happen if we were so marked by the Lamb that it began to change all things? Because all those things that mark our lives, they destroy who we are one little piece at a time. And then we jump to chapter 8. It begins with the seventh seal, so we do kind of get that. And here's what we see in chapter 8. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all God's people on the golden altar in front of the throne. I'm going to read that line again because that's really good. We'll come back to it. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all God's people on the golden altar in front of the throne. The smoke of the incense together with the prayers of God's people went up before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it on the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. The seventh seal was open, but then we kind of pause again, and we go to seven trumpets. And the two stories from the Old Testament that might be helpful for us, the two stories are this, right? Maybe you've seen the VeggieTales movie of Jericho and the walls fall down, and they throw milkshakes at them. Slushies? Slushies, not milkshakes? Okay, whatever. I thought they were milkshakes. Um, I would prefer milkshakes. Um, just 
so you know. But, but you see this marked around seven times, they blow trumpets seven times, and the walls fall down. What's the point? What if our security is, again, in the wrong things? What we can create, what we can build, what we can hold, what we can manage. And then we see, again, the Exodus story, and the trumpet blows, and we see these plagues come, and they're literally a copy of the same plagues on Egypt. And then there's a trumpet blowing the fifth trumpet, and we see the abyss, right? And what is the abyss, right? Maybe helpful. So in chapter 4, John gets to go into the throne room where God is, right? Cool. It's this great, beautiful picture. It's all this great worship. It's peaceful and beautiful. And in this one, we see that the abyss. And I know for us, like, what's the abyss? Well, what if it was this? I know you can't imagine a place where people keep going in the direction that leads to more and more brokenness and more and more destruction, where people continually choose things that don't lead to the best life over and over again, where they put their hope and trust in systems that lead to brokenness. I know we can't imagine a world like that. Or it's called Monday. Right, and so what we see in this, in chapter four, we saw the beautiful picture of what could be in the kingdom of God. And in this chapter, we see what we see the worst of what's on the nightly news the hells of earth, and we see this is what happens with life apart from God. And maybe you caught this. When the first seals were opened, one quarter of all creation was destroyed, and then the trumpets were blown, one third of all creation was destroyed. And what's the point? It's not that God's judgment is destroying all these people, but here is the point. People keep choosing what they want, regardless of what kind of message God keeps offering. The seals are open to get the attention of the people of the world. But how often do you and I choose to ignore it? In fact, we see these words at the end of chapter 9. It says this, The rest of mankind were not killed by these plagues, still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. After all these pictures, people still didn't repent. They still didn't stop living lives that led to destruction. I know we cannot fathom that in the world that we live. But whatever message God may have for us, we still find ourselves drawn to these kind of things. Do we quit? We quit trying, it's time to go back, it's time to stop, and like just throw up our hands and not care, or do we have a role to play in this? And this is where we go back to that chapter 8, those first five verses, especially that line I love where it says it mixed the prayers of the saints or the prayers of God's people, it mixed them together with the power of God, right? So our prayers mixed with the power of God have cosmic the lamb is the one that brings about God's redemption, but God does it through and with us, but not in the way of the systems of the world, right? That's what he keeps trying to say all throughout this book, is all the pictures of empire and systems that you think of, they don't work. They are not the answer. When you vote this week, it is not the answer to the kingdom of God. The answer is only found in the person of Jesus. And his church is called to bear witness to who Jesus is throughout the world, and so what's that look like for us? How then do we pray? Um, I almost, I literally have in my, in my notes, I have like lines where I was going to cut this section out, but it's too good to cut out, so I'm not. Um, but maybe you've heard, like if you were to study philosophy, there are these omnis of God, right? We say God is omnipresent, he's omnipotent, he's omnibenevolent, which means all loving, uh, and he's omniscient. Like he knows all things, he has all power, 
Um, but here's what I would say. I'm all in on the idea that God is omnipresent. God's everywhere. I 100% believe that. I believe God is omnibenevolent. Like he is all-loving. But these other two, by the way, these are not biblical terms, just so we're all clear on that. Um, I, I don't know that God is omnipotent, all-powerful. And here's, bear with me, right? I think, I think what we begin to find throughout the scriptures is there is openness to the way God works in the world. That God begins to open up in such a way that you and I are invited to know this, that um, not that God can't do something, but he won't do certain things. Not that God isn't capable, but God limits himself in relationship to us, that he, he says, no, 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 like, I, you have a role to play in this. In fact, that's why I would say he's also not omniscient in the way that we often will define that. And here's why, right? Two great pictures in the scriptures, right? The picture of Noah. Uh, he goes to Noah and God is angry at these people who are just so obstinate. And he goes, oh, why did I create them? Well, it would seem to me that if God in his creation had all foreknowledge in the way that we think about it, maybe God wouldn't have created them then. He just wouldn't have done it. But what if... What if God lives in the moment with us? God limits himself in such a way that he enters into relationship with us. And then we see this scene again with Moses, right? And, and then people are in the wilderness, and Moses goes up to the mountain, and they build this golden calf, which is a terrible idea. And they're going to worship this golden calf because they can see and touch and feel. And God says, you know, hey, um, Moses, these people, I'm just going to kill them all, and we're going to start all over. And Moses goes, God, don't you know who you are? You are slow to anger and abounding in love. And it's like, I goes, okay, you're right. That's who I am. I'll stop. Now, it's a little bit facetious, but it's kind of what the text says. And here's why I think that matters. Because if God is, is at work in the way that we have no influence in, then there's no point in us praying. It's a waste of our time. And I, I wish I could describe to you how God works in that. I, I don't really know. But I know this, when I read the prayers of the people of the New Testament, they don't pray like, God, you know, if it's your will, I'd love for Billy to be healed. No, they pray like, God, I expect you to do this. God, I know who you are. I know your character. I've seen it in your son. So God, here's what we want from you. We long for this. And so their prayers are these powerful moments where they're like, God, we're entrusting this to you. And God doesn't always answer prayer in the way we want him to. I wish he did. I wish God always answered prayer how I want. The world would be a better place. But if God answered prayers how I always wanted, then the, the prayers of others also have no influence. Or as a kid, I used to pray, like, God, um, like if I'd been playing in the Michigan-Michigan State game yesterday, I'd been praying, God, will you help us to win? Which by virtue means I'm praying that they will lose. That means I'm more important than them. But God goes, mm, not how that works. I don't want to care who wins the game. Some of you really care. He doesn't. But here's the reality for us. What happens when we begin to pray? What if our lives are marked by this consistency and this passionate prayer life? What if the mark of the people of God is a commitment to pray, believing that we can influence the work of God in the world, that his, his cosmic purposes, that the redemption and restoration of all things Jesus promised us, not just in his life, but even in this book of Revelation, that that will come true. But in between then and now, what might happen if you and I pray with conviction that God might want to do something? 
Because who we believe God is and how God works in the world impacts how we pray. And I love the way that Eugene Peterson takes Revelation chapter 8, 1 through 5, and he calls it this, that, that scene where people are praying, it's mixed with the stuff of God and thrown back to the earth. He calls it reverse thunder. Right? This idea that God's going to take our prayers and mix them with the power of God and do something in the world. So what might happen if the people of God were marked by lives of prayer? What might happen if you and I, our lives were marked by the Lamb of God, who is the light of the world? What might happen if our lives were marked by Jesus? That is the picture we see in Revelation 6 through 9. And may it be Jesus where we put our faith and our hope and our trust. May he be the place we find our trust and our security and our hope. We pray with me this morning. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together. We thank you for the way you love us and the way you desire to be at work in and through us. We pray this morning that you would help us to find our lives drawn to you, transformed by you. May we begin to recognize that your mercy, that your grace extends for us in ways that matter. May you help us to become the people more and more whose lives are marked by you and your son, by your love and your grace and your mercy. May we be marked by that more than we're marked by anything else in the world. And so, Father, help us to ways in which we find ourselves drawn to things that are broken. May we trust you with all that we are and all that we say and all that we do. May we come to know the one who would lay down his life for the sake of ours. And may we reorient who we are around that. And so, Father, help us to be a part of painting a beautiful mural in the world in which we live. I pray all this in Jesus' name.